0: We have more than a passing interest in story. We're addicted to it. And I don't just mean we writers, I mean we everyone. It's it's our default. You know, if we don't have to do something else, we're consuming one story or another. And just like other kinds of addicts, we sneak at places. Yeah, you know, our smartphones have become like little story flasks. If an alcoholic were to smuggle booze into a restaurant just in case they didn't have a liquor license, they would have a problem. You know, but when we stream Hulu during traffic, you know, we're just being time-savvy. You know, I'm gonna watch this now, you know, so I can spend more time with the kids. You know, as if you had to watch that first, you know. <laughs> it just, that was the number one priority. It can honestly seem as if our days are dedicated to experiencing story punctuated by moments of actual living. On average, we watch five hours of TV every day. We read about 16 books a year, and Netflix, not even including the other streaming companies, plays an average of an hour and a half of content per viewer per day. And if these numbers are even close to accurate, it would mean that the average American spends more time consuming story than sleeping, eating, and commuting combined. This is crazy to me, but if you just counted theatrically released films, published books, and broadcast TV shows, 114 new stories reach the American consciousness every hour. And that's just what we add to the mounds of older stories in syndication, red box kiosks, and Oprah's reading list every hour. But this just feels normal, though, doesn't it? It just feels normal to turn the TV on as soon as we wake up or take our Kindles with us if we're going to be gone for more than a few minutes. In some ways, it's like any other addiction. We use it to self-medicate, to drown out our loneliness, to escape, to mask our depression. But in other ways, it's totally different. It's normal. It's acceptable. Story may be our time's most celebrated addiction. We just take turns bashing the form that it takes. When radio theater came out, purists thought our brains would get lazy because we didn't have to read. When television took over, they were sure it would rot our brains because we didn't have to imagine the scenes. And now with everyone in the family glued to their own private theaters, people mourn the halcyon days when families would gather together in the living rooms and share in a single story. Our relationship with story has always been complicated. And that complexity only continues to increase with each new form that it takes. But perhaps what should be our biggest concern is the one that no one talks about. We're not really sure what story is. No two definitions are the same. I think worse than that, defining story has become taboo, like defining love. There are some things that people just don't want to put into a box. But the analogy falls apart when the gurus, who see no need for a general consensus on what story even is, also give lectures on how to create it. Create what? What is it? Even when we talk about things that we are comfortable with, like story principles, we don't know why they work. Characters should have flaws. Okay? Why? Why? It makes it more interesting. Well, why? How? What we end up doing is citing examples of where the rules worked. We don't know what made them work. We just know where they did. And that seems to be enough for us to find patterns and good stories and turn them into principles without going behind the scenes in the audience's mind to see what makes them work. And in fairness, you know what makes defining stories so difficult is that it's hard to find the one thing they all have in common. Definitions have two parts. First, you put the concept into a group. Then, you show how it is different from all the others within that group. So if I wanted to define a bicycle, I could say that it's a two-wheeled mode of transportation propelled by pedaling. The two-wheeled mode of transportation is the starting group which also includes mopeds and and motorcycles and propelled by pedaling leaves us with only a bike. You can see that you want to start with the absolute smallest group you can because it would get harder and harder to find that one thing that makes it different. If we started off with just mode of transportation, we couldn't use propelled by foot to distinguish it because we've got unicycles, tricycles, big wheels, And I think with story, that first step is what makes defining it so hard. Because you have to find one thing all stories have in common. Think about everything that might be reasonably considered story. It's diverse. Other arts don't have this problem, because they're defined by the media used to create them. Photography? Use a camera. Paintings? Are made out of paint. But story, it's something we add to art forms. Writing is just one way of doing it. We can speak it. And with film, theoretically, story doesn't even need language anymore. Silent films. I mean, let this sink in. It's not an art form. It's not a narrative. It's something we put into these things and this is wild photography is defined by the form it takes but it's subjects can be anything landscapes or fruit your nephew painting works the same way the media is set but the subjects are limitless story is the opposite it can take almost any form you can imagine But its subject can't. Every story ever told has something in common. They are all about people. This may not impress some of you, but it should. It may seem obvious, but it shouldn't. We tend to think of writing and story as the same thing, or near the same thing. But they're not. You can write about anything. But for it to even be considered a story, it has to be about people. The reason this is so important is because it gives us a clue of where to look to study story. Not in the thousands of examples people look to prove principles, but in the audiences, our social minds. To understand what story is, we're going to have to look at what story does. When you know a little bit about social psychology, it makes a lot of sense that we would become as addicted to story as we are. We're addicted to story because we're programmed to be obsessed with people. There was a study done a few years back where psychologists monitored the activity in people's brains when thinking about different things. And what they found out was that when they weren't asked to think about anything specific, the areas of the brain that dealt with social interactions lit up. Which is to say that when we don't have to think about other things, our brains naturally jump to our relationships. The social world is like our brain's screensaver, it's that important. In fact, you know, a lot of our stress um, or mental illness comes from this rumination going haywire you know, getting stuck in regret or guilt or anger. And if we spend a little bit of time just looking at what our social brains are programmed to do, we might end up with a much better understanding of our relationship with story. One of the, th- one of the things that's important to understand is that social monitoring systems are not unique to human beings. And it is a system. You know, there's a bunch of different parts. Most mammals have some version of the things that we have. But what is uniquely human is the level at which they've developed and the circumstances in which we've put them. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to give kind of a a drunk history of how those circumstances have changed so drastically for our species and we became the social addicts that we are today. So around 10,000 years ago, we were all pretty much hunters and gatherers, which means that the way we got our food was we learned certain migratory routes that would land us to places where food grew naturally. So we, we didn't create cultures around making food, but around how to find it, what was safe to eat, and when it would be there. And when you look at this livelihood's efficiency, which is to say how many daily calories were spent getting the food versus how many we got from it, it was actually pretty efficient. There's still, there are still a few cultures who practice this today. You know, nature does most of the work. You just show up on time. So, after spending eons, after spending eons going about this way, we discovered agriculture. Probably by accident. You know, where some of the stuff we brought back started to grow. But in the early days, agriculture took more work than hunting and gathering. That is, until we stumbled on the greatest technological revolution in human history the cow. Or bulls, or whatever. You know, If you can find a way to convince large animals to plow your fields for you, dig your irrigation channels, transport your crop, your energy yield to investment ratio just skyrockets. Farming now was awesome. The most important part of all this is that so much food could be grown per person that for the first time in history, we had a permanent surplus Groups could now grow beyond 20 or 30 people. You know, there was so much grown that not everyone had to be part of the growing process. You could finally afford a division of labor. You could have soldiers you know, who protected the village from invaders, but who relied on those rationing the surplus for food. The ratio of a society's food growers to surplus beneficiaries has been declining ever since. As recently as 1900, 41% of the American workforce was employed in agriculture. Today, it's about one. 99% of our village relies on other people to feed them. We had social minds way before the birth of the food surplus. But in its wake, we found ourselves surrounded by not 20, but hundreds or thousands Hundreds of thousands of people. Social relationships weren't just about making life easier, they became matters of life and death. How many generations of soldiers would it take before they no longer inherited the skills necessary to feed themselves? How many, how many of us could grow food if we needed to? Our social marketplace became our livelihood. And our social minds became just about the most important survival tool we had. I made an argument earlier about, you know, Story not technically needing language. But outside of a few, you know, vacation homes, language is where Story likes to live. Language is also one of our most powerful social survival tools. With language, we can keep tabs on people. You know, it's harder for us to to defect on a deal if our selfishness can travel all over town. You know, no one's going to play with us after that. We'd be left alone, you know, with no access to the village surplus and no way of making it ourselves. Our reputations became our credit. And it was important for us to understand other people's reputations because a costly enough investment in a cheater could leave us with as just, just as destitute. So gossip is that thing we all claim to hate but we also devour every chance we get, no matter how stupid it is. You know, believe it or not, gossip is an incredibly valuable social tool. In the social marketplace, gossip is like insider trading. You want to know what's going to happen to your investments before you make them. If you're about to go on a hunt with someone, you want, you want to know if they've cheated people in the past. You, know, you want to know if they're lazy. Remember, group size is big enough now to where you might not know everyone with whom you interact. You didn't grow up with all these people. So gossip has a way of helping you make better social investments and distancing you from the troublemakers so you don't get lumped in with them. Of course, we, we all know, not all gossip is true. You know, Sometimes evildoers will use it to make strategic alliances with people or tear apart existing relationships. So while gossip can be useful, you know there's three conditions that can be met for it to be most useful. Gossip should be new, true, and bad. Here's why. Few things are more irritating than being taught something you already know. You know our minds are designed to pay attention to changes, and we'll talk about more about that next week. But it makes a lot of sense to ignore what we can expect so that we can pay attention to what is new. So we want to hear gossip that shocks us a little and provides us with a new tool to use out there. Gossip should also be true. If we believe a lie, we might needlessly forgo building a potentially valuable relationship with a person. Or we could end up the pawn in someone's evil plan to puppet the marketplace in their favor. So the more shocking the news is, The more evidence we need to believe it. It's this weird balance, you know, if if you're not shocking enough, we won't care. If it's very shocking, we we're gonna need a lot of evidence to help build a new reality. And finally, gossip should be bad. We want to keep our distance from people who do bad things. Gossip is a wonderfully efficient tool for doing that. But when someone does something good, we want to be as close to them as possible. Either to reap the benefits of whatever success they've had, or just to be associated with them in other people's minds. But do you guys see what's going on here? I mean, look at it. New? True? Bad? For us to care about a story, it has to be new. Good stories have to show us something about our social world that's new. It has to be true. True. Stories have to be believable in terms of their social interactions. We don't care if they take place in the center of the moon or have Wookiees in it. You know, what makes a story believable or not believable is in the social interactions between the characters. It has to be bad. All stories are centered on conflict. Stories are about bad stuff that happens in one social world. We're looking at story in its infancy. And we, we can stop thinking about story as some prescriptive set of rules that we've created. What if we stopped searching for new story truths by coming through those 114 news stories we get every hour? And instead, we went behind the scenes of our own brains to find that story is in fact an appeal to a very old, very complex, very beautiful social mind. If we did this, then as writers, we could get to know story as it is in nature, not as it is in our best guesses of what it should be. Unlike painting, unlike sculpting, story is not defined by the form it takes, but by what it does to hold the audience's attention and how it does it. In this program, we are going to be looking at all of the story principles and rules we think we know, from character motivation to plot twists and we're going to be asking why and then we're going to answer not in terms of examples where they were effective or weren't but in terms of what they do to us and how they do it it's a weird analogy but consider the obesity epidemic in america we eat more fat and sugar than we should but why one answer is it's, it's in everything produced, and for whatever reason, we tend to demonize fast food restaurants and, and soda companies for doing this to us. But that's not how it works. You know, they produce a product we like. So the, the real question is, why do we like sugar and fat so much that we want it in everything we eat? Our minds have evolved to favor sugar and fat because it's rare in nature and valuable in small doses. Take it when you can get it. But this surplus, this choice-driven world is being built based on a relationship with our own minds that we barely understand. We're building it, but the blueprints came from somewhere else. It's true for our relationship with food, with love, and I'm going to be spending the rest of my life arguing. It's true for story as well.